Welcome to Status Check with Spivey, where we talk about life, law school, a lot of law school admissions. And today we're going to cover a little bit of everything with a bit of a different kind of guest, Karen Sloan, who works for Reuters Legal and has covered for her career legal education, law firms. This is a fascinating conversation because Karen knows a lot about how law schools have changed and how law students have changed. And we're going to talk about, if you're applying to law school, hopefully you're going to law school, what's ahead of you? What are the next three years going to look like? What are some of the changes that have been progressive and inspiring for law students? What are some of the issues that law schools are working on? What do they need to work on? So what is the future to come? And then even beyond that, Karen talks with a lot of expertise about law firms, how they hire, what they do. And I think it's just going to be something that, again, this is not necessarily going to get you into the law school, your dreams. It's going to impact you for three, four, five, six years down the road, including one year down the road when you start law school. So this is a value-added podcast, fascinating discussion with someone who's seen it all, has some really interesting stories. Without further delay, here's Karen. Hey, Karen, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I'm excited to be on the podcast. I feel like this is um, turnabout is fair play. You've interviewed me and asked some tricky questions that I stumbled over. So now I get to do it to you. Yeah, I've bugged you enough over the years that it's only fair that you get a chance to throw some hard, hard balls at me. It's never a bother. The first thing I'm interested in, hopefully it won't be a hardball, it's really about you, how you got started in journalism, what fired? Was it at an early age? What made you interested in this? And then how you got put or put yourself into sort of covering legal education law firms? I think I might be a little unusual in the world of journalism because I knew when I was maybe like 15 or 16 that this was something that I wanted to do. I started writing for my high school newspaper and something just clicked. I loved writing. I loved talking to people. And I think it's unusual because I know so many journalists who are, are like career switchers who started doing something else and then said, hey, journalism looks fun. I think I want to do that. And I feel kind of lucky that I had sort of an indication early on that this is what I wanted to do. I actually went to school for journalism, did my undergrad there, worked at a small paper on the coast of Georgia covering cops and courts, which was like insanely fun and also really hard. And then I went to grad school at Columbia, you know, for a year at their journalism school then went out and worked at the newspaper in Omaha, Nebraska, where I covered city hall government affairs there. And then I came to New York and that's when I got started in legal journalism. I started working at the National Law Journal in I think 2008. And I remember exactly the time that I started doing that because it was literally like the month of the big financial crash. And they hired me to cover mid-sized law firms. But at the time, like every story was just this firm laying off this many people. And like, it was just so depressing. And it was like a really weird time to get into legal journalism. But over the next couple of years, you know, I was primarily writing about mid-sized law firms, but on the side, I wrote about law schools just because I thought it was interesting. I'm one of those people that had sort of toyed with the idea at one point of going to law school. And I never did it. I went to journalism school instead because journalism school was like a year. And law school was three, right. you know, like, I don't Nicole. know if I want to do, right. I don't know law if I want to be two years in the, in the, in the coming future, by the way. Yeah. I mean, we never know, like there's been talk about that for a while. 
But um, it was an interesting time to start writing about law schools because you will know this and some of your listeners will know this, but 2010, 2011 was really when we began to see sort of the quote crisis in legal education quote start. That's when we had, you know, the fortunes of law schools started to decline around that time when fewer and fewer people were applying. So it just so happened that I was in the right place at the right time. I don't know that anybody was sort of full-time writing about legal education in any of the legal press. And because the story was so dynamic at that time, we recognized that this should be my primary focus. Far fewer people were reading my stories about mid-sized law firms. A lot more people were reading the law school stuff. There was clearly an appetite for that. And I have a theory if you want me to I do. Sort of I'm share. curious. Well, what I think that's happening is taking the LSAT, going to law school, taking the bar exam. Those are like the three sort of universal experiences that every lawyer had, right? Maybe if I'm writing about like IP or something specialized, you know, the people who work in that space are interested. But when I write about law schools, that's something that every lawyer can relate to because they all were like freaked out one L's getting cold called or hunker down studying for the bar exam. Like it's such a universal experience and people stay interested in it. A lot of people continue to follow those issues. And I think it's just because they themselves went through that. And obviously they're interested in what's happening with their own law schools. They maintain that connection. So I just think there's this sort of universal interest in legal education because everybody has a personal experience with that. Have you ever written an article on undergraduate education, higher ed in general? Only insofar as it's like the pipeline into legal education. Trends that happen at the undergraduate level obviously impact the applicant pool or who might consider going to law school. But I don't have a good sense of how different it is covering specifically legal education as opposed to higher education. Well, yeah, and that's, and that's why I asked that question. I would suspect that interest would even be greater in undergrad education because I don't know about you with your experience, but when I think about my doctoral program, the business school I went to and, the, and then the undergrad experience, I would say 95% of the time my random brain's going to fire neural connections about, oh, that time undergrad, which is why yeah. it's so much easier for undergraduate institutions to raise money, why they have these huge endowments and law schools in general don't really have big endowments. When you ask someone for money, they're primarily going to give it to where they went undergrad. Those are their fond memories. You know, I drank beer in this dorm room with my buddies, not I was in the library crunching for three years. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I do think law school is pretty formative for, for lawyers as well, but you have a good point. I don't know that a lot of people think of law school as the time that they really came of age, you know, found themselves. I don't know. It's interesting. There's a good deal of research. I can't remember the, the, there's a professor who researches this, but how much people change going into law school. Here's the scary outcome of this research. Most people versus the baseline go into law school kind, less dependent on substances. You know where this is going. Oh, yes. I've seen Yeah. And they leave law school, not maybe quite as empathetic to other people, a higher percentage dependent on substances or behavioral issues. So law school itself has a transformative impact on obviously not everyone, but it can have a negative deleterious transformative impact on some people. It's something that I think we all, all of us in this space should at least talk about somewhat because I think knowledge and awareness is, is helpful for people. Yeah. I do think legal education as a whole is finally starting to have some of these difficult conversations about 
the negative impacts, like you mentioned, heightened depression, anxiety, substance abuse. I think now that there's solid data and research out there, people are starting to question whether sort of the format and the focus on competition and the way that your entire grade rests on a single exam at the end of the semester, whether those are really healthy ways to educate new lawyers. I think there's a lot more to be said about that. And we're only in the early stages, but I'm hopeful that there may be a more comprehensive rethinking of sort of the format and the ways that law school structured that are, I think, very clearly contributing to some of these negative impacts. It's interesting because law school, in some sense, is zero sum. The way it's graded and the way people are hired is a zero sum game. But the practice of law, which I don't, I know very little about. I just happen to know thousands of lawyers, <laughs> but I haven't done it myself. The practice of law strikes me as zero sum. There are winners in negotiation. There are losers. There are winners in trial. There are losers. So one argument would be, well, if we're teaching zero sum, or if our culture is zero sum, we're actually preparing people. But yeah, I I think you're right. I think the trend hopefully is in a little bit of a kinder process. You'll be covering it so we we can revisit this. (laughs) But you're right. When your job prospects boil down to like a ranking of your grades in school, that can't help but sort of ratchet up the anxiety that students are feeling. So, you know, I think it's not just law school that needs to change, but also I would like to see some changes in sort of how big law hires and, you know, if it's really going to alleviate some of these pressures. What would be a change you would want to see in how big law hires? I would like to see them sort of step back from this sort of idea that we're only going to look at people in the top X percent of the class. If it's five, if it's 10, I understand why they do it because they get a lot of people who want to come, but it's also arbitrary. I'm hard pressed to believe that somebody who's ranked in the top 5% at Harvard or NYU or these schools where they hire a lot from is really any more qualified than somebody who's, you know, in the 20th percentile or whatnot. And I think by just having these, what I think are kind of arbitrary cutoffs, they're missing out on good people. And I also think they need to look farther than the 5, 10, 15 elite schools that they traditionally recruit out. I think there's really great students at schools that are outside of the T14. And I'd like to see firms make more of an effort to reach students at those schools. Yeah, the hilarious part of all that to me is, so I was interviewed two days ago on a podcast called Ed Up that'll be published at some point. But what I said on that, I'll repeat because it bears mentioning, people get consumed with rankings. We love as human beings for things to be ordinarily sequentially ranked. But if I were to put 20 hiring partners on this Zoom with us, if I were to ask all of them, name the top 20 law schools, not a single one would be able to do it. I am convinced of that. I talk to hiring partners all the time. Maybe some could come close, but there's no possible way they could just, like I live in this world so much I could, but they couldn't just bat off the top 20 like an applicant might even be able to do. So then why is 20 your arbitrary cutoff? Is 20 any better than 21? The 21st school is Florida. Florida might be a much better school to hire out of if you're in Atlanta or Miami versus the 20th ranked school. I would agree with you 100%. I think it's there's flaws in the system. We had a, a lawyer on our podcast two months ago, Clint Schumacher, who was the former hiring partner for Lock Lord. He did talk about how he looks for growth mindset versus like GPA growth. (laughs) Right. 
All right, we'll get away from the stressful stuff. What are one or two of your favorite stories, either heartwarming or just interesting that you've covered in your career? I don't know that this is like a specific story, but one thing that I, that's been enjoyable for me to write about is, and at least it's my perception, the law students of today are really finding their voice and they're really getting active on social issues. And that's not to say that law students as a whole have ever been shrieking violets or afraid to say anything. But I do think that this current generation of law students is more willing to sort of stick their neck out and make noise over the things that they believe in. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the People's Parity Project that started out of Harvard that went after law firms that use mandatory arbitration for associates and employees, the similar group that's sort of raising the issue of law firms representing fossil fuel clients and trying to convince classmates to not go recruit at those law firms. And I think the biggest single example is student groups sort of going to their own administrations and raising concerns about diversity issues on campus. There's been a lot more of that lately, advocating for greater diversity on the faculty, more diversity within the student body. I think it's been kind of cool to see law students really step up. And this is something that I've heard from people like Kelly Testy at the Law School Admission Council and others. Just this idea that law students today are perhaps even more socially and civic minded than some of their predecessor classes. That's a pretty cool phenomenon, I think. And then, you know, some of the other stories that have been interesting to cover, like we mentioned before, sort of the ebbing and flowing nature of law school's fortunes. I don't remember. You might remember better than me. If it was a quarter decline, I think it might actually have been like the one third decrease in law school applicants that we saw about a decade ago. I mean, that was a really interesting story to cover because there were so many aspects to it, right? We saw schools closing. For the first time in a long time. Yeah, that had not happened in a very long time. I think going off memory again, I think we may be up to six, six or seven now, five, six or seven campuses that have since closed. I mean, that would have been unheard of like 20 years ago. That would have been unheard of. It's also really interesting to see how schools responded and how they kept the lights on when they had fewer students. So maybe not a super fun story to follow, but it was really interesting to see. Uh, I could go on in length about this, Karen, because this is going to be our future too. There's going to be two levers that are pulled really hard. One is student loan reform, where students will no longer be able to just put their entire tuition essentially on a credit card called the federal government. And that's going to cause schools to have to figure out their operating expenses about 75% to 80% go to salary right now. So how do you take a tenured faculty member and say, I'm sorry, but to stay in business, we got to lower your salary. That's that coming. tends not to go over very well with them. Go figure. They don't like that. Yeah, I'm afraid to even speak about it on this podcast. <laughs> I'll be even more disclosive. When the rankings came out, I think it was Columbia, some faculty member from Columbia said, you know, it's great. We're ranked number four or, or whatever, but it's not acceptable that our tuition is 76000 or whatever. I add these or whatever's in case I'm not exactly right. Of course, that's a very popular thing to tweet, and I didn't get involved because I hate social media drama. But what I wanted to say was, well, where do you think that 76000 is going towards? 80% of it is going towards your salary or 75% is going towards your salary. And if I had said that, 
I wouldn't have made it out of that threat alive. But that's that's the future is there's only really two areas to trim, which is merit aid the students. And the only way that's going to get trimmed down is if schools get off this rankings carousel that they're on or salaries, which is primarily faculty and tenured track faculty. And then the other lever that's going to get pulled on so hard, which you and I will probably be talking about four years from now, if I haven't just fled to the mountains and live in a cave, is um, the demographic cliff, which is going to hit. So you mentioned the third, about a third of applicants to undergraduate schools are going to disappear in 2026 because people stopped having children during the Great Recession. It's amazing how old we are. Like in 2026, that 2008 thing you referenced, the 2010 thing is going to come back. And then in 2029, 2030, that's going to hit law schools. The future of legal education, will be. you and I will be discussing this for years. It's going to change dramatically. I'm sure you've had thoughts. I agree. And I think it's going to happen. I think we're going to see a number of things, right? I think there's been a lot of attention to the surge in applicants this year unclear whether that is going to continue. But as you and I both know, when this larger class graduates, we're going to have to see how they do on the employment market. I think that was one of the things that really hurt law schools during the last crisis was the low employment rates, right? Like nobody was willing to pay the 70, what did you say? $73,000 to go to Columbia if their employment rates weren't looking so good. So I think one of the things we're going to have to see is this class that just started this month in three, four years, did they find enough jobs? What was their employment rate? So we'll see that. And then as you mentioned, undergraduate education is the pipeline, right? So we do have to closely track what's happening on that end. And if there are fewer undergrads coming out, potential applicants, the law schools are really going to figure out how to make the case that legal education is worth the investment. As of yesterday, enrollment to the law schools we know about was up 8%. That doesn't sound like a large number, but when you, if that were to hold steady and you look at maybe 50,000 people going to law school and your enrollment is up 8,000 students, that's 8,000 extra people that have to find jobs when they graduate from law school. And I don't know if the legal market can bear that or not. A lot's going to depend on the economy, which you and I have no idea because no economist has any idea what's going to happen three years from now with the economy. But 8,000 would be a lot to place. And I think you, what you're alluding to is exactly what happened in the Great Recession. You saw the spike in applications year one and year two, and then yep. that precipitous cliff where applications just fell off. Any other interesting topics that sort of come to mind, on, maybe even on the law firm? I know you've covered law firms. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big issues, the hot topics right now is just like the fight for associate talent. It's getting mean out there. I mean, there there's like this appetite, right, for young associate talent and lateral hiring for associates is hot. I think we'll see more summer associate recruiting. And I think we'll see an increase in the number of summer associates coming in for next year. Obviously, the hiring is kind of wrapped up for that. But firms are busy. And I think when they sort of roll back on summer associate hiring last summer during the pandemic, they're now realizing, hey, things are looking pretty good. We need associates to to staff all these deals and and all this litigation. Where are they going to come from? I think we're seeing a lot of money being thrown around. When you tell somebody who doesn't follow the legal industry that these big law firms are paying $200,000, to these people fresh out of law school who don't really know anything, I think their eyes bug out. But 
to a firm, that's now just the cost of doing business because they need those bodies in the door. So I think the demand and the money that is flowing to associates right now is one of the things that people are really watching closely. It's so glamorous to hinge on that $200,000 starting, but no one, when they listen to that, they don't listen to the second half of that conversation, which is if you look at the bimodal distribution, most graduates are starting off in the 55 to 75,000 range. Bill Only Henderson it. would be very proud of you. Yeah. For <laughs> yeah. The bimodal distribution. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, right? It totally obscures the reality for the vast majority of new law school graduates. I will tell you, we in the legal press are guilty of this too. We pay a lot of attention to what happens in big law. And big law is a relatively small slice of the legal profession overall. So yes, the coverage of big law is outsized. But you know, that's also what the readership is interested in. And we don't spend as much time talking about what's happening with, uh, you know, solos, firms of 10 or fewer lawyers, public defenders, public interest attorneys. There are so many out there who will never make $200,000. After 30 years in practice, they will never make that kind of money. But that's also a harder nut to crack, right? Big law is in a way easy to cover because they all follow each other, right? They just do the same things. Most of them just do the same things. So there's like a really clear narrative. And it's a lot harder to sort of look at solos because some of them are doing gangbusters and some of them are really struggling and have been struggling for years and it's more difficult to sort of identify trends when, when you move outside of the big law space. You mentioned doing the same things. By your estimation, are law schools by and large doing the same things? Or I don't the- think they're as bad as big law. I will put it that way. Yeah. I don't know that there's like the equivalent of lockstep compensation on the legal education front. I mean, yeah. right to like a certain extent because of ABA regulations and standards, they do have to do a lot of the same thing. Some schools are, I give credit for experimenting and trying new things. And as you know, schools are known for different things. They have different niches, different niches of students who they serve or different areas of specialty. I guess you could say the same thing for big law firms as well in terms of specialty. But I do think legal education is not quite as monolithic, I guess, as I consider quote unquote big law to be. Okay, that's interesting. I'm going to put you on the spot. A question just occurred to me. If you could go to law school, and you mentioned you thought about it, and if you were to magically wave a wand and you were admitted with a full ride to any law school out there, which one would you go to and why? I'm I'm taking the fifth on that one, (laughs) Mike. Mike. (laughs) There was no way I was ever going to answer that question. You do this to people for a living. I get people who send emails to me. And honestly, it's very rarely the applicant themselves. It's usually the nervous parent who is like, my son or daughter got into this or that, like, what should they do? And I I just say, you know what, I'm a lowly reporter, you know, I can send them to some sort of resources like ABA statistics and whatnot, but I also don't weigh in on those. Not That's my hilarious. Role. I mean, I, I, as you could guess, I get that every day of my life. That is your life. But for right. me, it's a little weird because it's uh, yeah, not my and, job to advise these people on well, what their children don't, should please, do. Please don't send them my way. I get about 300 <laughs> of those messages. A That's a good idea from now no, on. No. I'm just going to say, this is Mike Spivey. He knows yeah. what he's talking about. Here's his email address. No, no, no not that either. Right. My final question, since I think we're about, I know you're, we're both busy, 
you're a professional, I'm an amateur. What could I do better for going forward for podcasts? And if you could say one person you find fascinating that we should have on our podcast, who would it be? So how could I have done this better? And who should we have on the Status Chat with Spivey podcast? Hmm. Well, gosh, how can you do it better? I think I'm going to turn the question around because I actually think you have a really good sort of conversational approach on podcasting. I used to co-host a podcast and I did some interviews too. And I will say lawyers can be tough on podcasts because sometimes they want to be overly formal. Sometimes I get people who want all of the questions in order, exact order laid out so they can prepare their answers. And then they always sound stilted. So I think you have like a good sort of conversational approach to the podcast, which I like in terms of who you should have on. Gosh, that's a tough one. Because I saw, as you tweeted earlier, that you're going to have Dean Z on, who is one yeah. of my favorite people in legal yeah. education. She she's, tells it like it is. So I've, Yeah, I've known her for 20 years, I think. She's going to be great. So I'm glad to see that you're going to have her on. You mentioned Bill Henderson. That could be someone who has lots of interesting, analytic, data-minded thoughts on this whole process. Yeah, and Bill has some really interesting insight, I think, into sort of law firm hiring and how that can be improved, which I hope you'll have him on the podcast and that a bunch of law firm hiring partners will listen. As we mentioned, I think there is plenty of room for improvement on that front. Law school hiring partners don't care much about status check with Spivey podcast, but maybe if we had Bill on, they would. The one thing I would say is we have made a conscious decision and we're going to continue to do so to have people talk about self-care, mental health, mental well-being because I think it's so important. And I could do a podcast on the future of admissions and all of our listeners would flock to it. I wish more of our listeners would also equally flock to the ones on substance abuse, behavior abuse, how to handle being rejected, how to handle the stress of law school. I think the things I say are helpful for one year. The things these experts say are helpful for a lifetime. Okay, so that I do have my person. Have you spoken with Patrick Crow? I have not. I do know the name. Yeah, he has done research in conjunction with, I believe it was the ABA or the ABA Foundation on substance abuse and other issues amongst law students. And he now consults and helps firms sort of figure out how to address those issues within their own attorney ranks. And I think he would be excellent. He's got a lot of good insights on the issues specific to attorneys. He really understands how practicing law and law school are pretty different and have different pressures than a lot of other lines of work. I think he'd be excellent. So you were excellent too. I appreciate your time. I know you have all these deadlines. Thank you. And please don't send any inquisitive parents my way, but it's too late. I've already sent five. (laughs) Okay. Well, five I can handle. 500, maybe not. It's good to catch up, but I'm sure we'll talk again probably pretty soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. Good to see you, Karen.